If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 530. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me an email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, a free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. Support the show by going to mclanahanacademy.com. It's always free to enroll. You get that free class, 10 Myths of American History, when you do enroll. And, of course, you get great deals on new and forthcoming courses. We're coming up on Christmas, so uh, be on the lookout for perhaps some Black Friday deals, maybe a little early. So if you want to get that McClanahan, Brian McClanahan fan, a great gift, get them a McClanahan Academy course or 12 because it's like getting this podcast, but with a lot more information. It gives you all that ammunition you need to push back against all the loons out there on the other side. Also, you can click on the support tab at brianmcclanahan.com. You can throw a few pennies my way, get a book plate for my autograph of one of my books, purchase one of my books. Those also make great Christmas gifts. Click on the shop tab, get that Christmas gift. I mean, we're in October, going to Hope Depot, they already got the Christmas trees out. So people are already thinking about Christmas, so... Get a Brian McClanahan Show logo on all kinds of cool stuff. Again, make great gifts. And with supply chain issues, you might want to get these things early this year. And as always, share the podcast around on social media. Rate it where you get your podcasts. Let people know you're thinking locally, acting locally. And send me those show requests. In fact, today, the first day, we're here on Monday. Happy New Week to everybody. And we're going to have a great week at the McClanahan, Brian McClanahan Show. But this is a listener-generated episode, and this one comes from California. And I, I'd like to get uh, emails. I get emails from all over the world, number one. But this one comes from California, and uh, it's a great question. And if you are a McClanahan Academy subscriber, if you've purchased my course, United States History Survey course, you already know how I handle this, but maybe you don't. So this is going to be a great segue into... Hey, you know, you should get these classes. It'll help you when you're trying to have course prep. This is, comes from a high school history teacher in California. He says, I'm new to the show, and I think it's great. Of course. Of course you do. No, I'm just uh, Thank you for listening. I'm just uh, joking with that. Uh, thanks for listening. I appreciate you tuning in. I'm a high school history teacher in liberal California. Listening to you got me to read, or led me to read, I should say, Calhoun's Fort Hill Address. I had not realized the brilliance of Calhoun until reading the speech. Yes, all you have to do is read Calhoun. This is the problem with Calhoun. I'll just say this. Most people have never read Calhoun before. They just have the boogeyman idea. They see the image that Samuel Flagg Bemis made famous of Calhoun when he has tuberculosis and he's dying. His face is all sunken in. He's got the neck beard. His hair is long and combed back. He looks terrible. And it's under that defender of slavery. So you have this demon figure. I mean, this is, this is what we get of Calhoun now. He's a demon. And if you ever read Calhoun, you come away thinking, wait a second here, this guy is pretty smart. Not just pretty smart, he's brilliant, as 
this listener says, true. Right? I mean, Calhoun is the political figure of the 19th century, the statesman of the 19th century. No one compares, no one comes close. He is the most original political theorist of the 19th century in the United States. Without question, he is it. And so the people that simply push Calhoun aside, or as Hugh Hewitt did a few weeks, I talked about this, oh, Calhoun is evil, and I can't think of any other word. And at least Larry Arn says, well, wait a second here. I mean, the guy's pretty smart. I mean, he's, he's a brilliant thinker. We may not agree with him. And of course, the West Coast Straussians, the neoconservatives, all these people, they don't because Calhoun is the root of all evil in America to them. But regardless, uh, you, have to, you have to read Calhoun to understand him. And this is why I think when you look at someone like Clyde Wilson, who spent his, almost his entire career in the profession, he wasn't always a historian, but spent his entire career in the profession reading Calhoun, you walk away with a different understanding of America. And it's not because uh, you don't see the other things that are going on. Of course you do. And it's not because you just become an acolyte of Calhoun. You can see where Calhoun made mistakes, or we may not agree with everything Calhoun said. We don't agree with everything Calhoun said. But certainly when you start looking at Calhoun and you say, wait a second here, uh, he, had, he was on to something with X, Y, and Z. We should really think about that. When you read Calhoun, it makes an impact on your life. When you physically sit down and read him, most historians will not do it. In my 26 speeches at Changed America course, I discuss Calhoun's positive good speech. It's, it's an interesting speech. And of course, it is the speech now. I mean, it's when you look at leftist historians, you look at progressives, and they want to, and you look at the neocons, you look at the Straussians. What do they point to? That one speech. That's it. That's the only thing they know. Calhoun said slavery was a positive good, and he believed in nullification. This is it. But they've never actually gone out and read his disquisition. They've never read his Fort Hill address. They've never read any of it. They've never read anything that he's written on anything. They just think they know. Now, there are some leftist scholars that will read it, and of course they're going in with a bias to begin with. And they come out with, they, they cherry pick whatever they want to make Calhoun look terrible. I mean, this is what they do. But I, I ref, again, I reference back to uh, Nicoletti, who wrote this little book on secession, Jefferson Davis's trial for treason. And I think it's interesting in that because when she, when she finished the book, I can see it. She apologizes if the book makes it sound like she favors the Jefferson Davis's side. She has to do that because I think what happened there is Cynthia Nicoletti went into that book with a fairly open mind. I'll say that. I think she went into that book with an open mind. Well, you know, here's this argument, uh, secession's treason. We got Jefferson Davis. He's going to be put on trial. She had never read any of the documents. She didn't know anything about it. So she goes into it, and she reads the arguments on both sides, and she starts thinking, wait a second here. Um, this, this The Davis side? Yeah, uh, they make a lot of sense. But she has to apologize for it because she knows that the profession has never read this stuff. They don't care to read this stuff. All they're going to read is a bunch of secondary sources on it from their own little uh, incestuous, syncophantic group. And it's going to be, well, I mean, uh, this is uh, Davis is bad. Calhoun is bad. This is all they're going to get. You see, this is why the historical profession is so bad. The mainstream historical profession is awful. 
because it's groupthink in the worst way. And the differences are not really major differences. They're degrees of differences. There's nobody, they don't, they don't hire anybody that's 180 degrees different from them. They can't because that would challenge them too much. That's the problem. So the question is, and I'm going to address it today, my question is, as a high school history teacher, how do I incorporate Calhoun into a larger story that is dominated by Jackson? How should the early national period be framed? A show on how to teach the Jacksonian period would be great. Well, thank you for that. And again, this is where McClanahan Academy can come in. If you are a high school history teacher, if you're someone who's a middle school history teacher, go out and pick up my courses. I've got that survey course on U.S. history. And, I mean, I lay out how I teach this class to a college audience, but also how I teach it basically to a high school audience. I mean, the, the survey course is designed to be used. You could use it as a high school history class, U.S. history class for a homeschooler, right? So, I mean, this is how I would do it. This is how I do do it. And we've got the Jacksonian era. I have a unit just on that. But, of course, Jackson is a big subject. I've talked about Jackson twice in two different books. The first is the Politically Incorrect Guide to Real American Heroes, where I call Jackson a hero. He is an American hero. The second is Nine Presidents Who Screwed Up America, where I say that Jackson screwed up America. Right? So how can the guy be both? How can he be a real American hero, and how can he screw up America as a president? Well, it's pretty easy. Right? So let me get into that, and then I'll talk about how I teach the Jacksonian era. First and foremost, Jackson is a hero. He is a larger-than-life figure. Well, that Andrew Jackson, the United States, does not do so well in the War of 1812, particularly in the South on the frontier. I mean, this is the man that won the Creek Indian War for the United States. This is the man that won the Battle of New Orleans, which made him a larger-than-life figure. He was a war hero, bona fide war hero. That particular episode in American history... This Battle of New Orleans, a colleague and I were talking about this the other day. There should be a great movie on that. Of course, it's going to be completely PC now. But if you could do it where it wasn't so over-the-top woke, uh, and because there's elements of it that already are PC, you've got this ragtag militia that's all kinds of different people fighting to defend New Orleans and barely loses a man against a substantial British invasion force. I mean... Uh, amphibious assault. This is an amazing battle. Jackson's paused to, to pray with the nuns, and he wins. And then he did this continually after that. Anytime he was in the area, he went and, and visited the convent where this happened. I mean, this is an amazing story. The Creek War is an amazing story. The Battle of Horseshoe Bend is interesting. And then, of course, Jackson's activities in Florida after the war is over, writing that he can control Florida within 30 days. And he essentially does it, even though he doesn't have any authorization. But he knew what was going on. The British were instigating Indian attacks on, to, on American settlements. They're in Spanish Florida. There's no law there. And so he goes in and does exactly what he has to do to take care of things. He occupies Pensacola. I mean, this is, this is an amazing military figure. Political career, Jackson was not really ideological at all. Jackson was Jackson. And, I, I mean, he was inclined to be a Jeffersonian. But remember, Thomas Jefferson called him a dangerous man. He had, of course, served sort of as a teenager in the American War for Independence. 13 years old, he's involved in that. 
So some people would say he's part of the founding generation. I don't, I don't believe that. I don't, I don't buy that. He's in the second generation of men. It would be like saying John Quincy Adams is of the founding generation. We know he's not. His father was. So Jackson's father would be of the founding generation. Jackson is the next generation. But, of course, he is a dominant figure. We call it the Jacksonian era. And part of that is because of historians. Frederick Jackson Turner in his Frontier Thesis, explaining that Jacksonian democracy was leveling the frontier. You've got Arthur Schlesinger in the age of Jackson. I mean, that, that book in itself is a dominant book. And of course, he's trying to make Jackson the Jacksonian period into a good progressive period. All these people were just progressives. They're just good Democrats. They believe in good democratic principles. Nowadays, Jackson is seen as someone on the right. Jackson is an, is an interesting character. You've got this uh, recent book by Brad Burrs where he makes Jackson out to be a staunch Republican with a lowercase r. That there was certainly this type of old Jeffersonian Republicanism in him. And I think you can say that to an extent. There, there's no doubt about that. But Jackson was also an authoritarian. Jackson was a general. In fact, that's what John Calhoun called him. General Jackson he was president. He was general. And I think he took office in 1829 with that mindset. General Jackson. You've got the contested elections, 24. And then, of course, he smashes Adams in 28. But you also have the creation of a new political faction during the age of Jackson, the Whig Party. In large part, in, in fact, in direct result of Jackson doing what he did during his time in office, which was act very authoritarian. So Jackson is a pivotal figure. In fact, you could say the direct line from Washington to Jackson to Lincoln. Everyone else in the middle has a different spin on the presidency. Washington did some things that I've criticized as being too monarchical. And then Jefferson reigns that in. He pulls that back. Even though you could say that Jefferson in his second term was not doing great things either. But he pulls, he reigns that in. And for the next 24 years, you have a Jeffersonian stamp on the presidency. In fact, this is what Kevin Gutzman, he's told me, he's going to talk about in his new book. How important that Jefferson inaugural address. He's, he frames the book with that address, and then carries it forward for 24 years. And I, you can make the case it even lasted longer than that. The principles that were contained in that inaugural address last longer than that. Jefferson set the tone. Jackson was an anomaly. Because you can make a case Martin Van Buren had gone right back to the Jeffersonian vision when he became president in 1837, and certainly John Tyler did. And then you get forward into after that. I mean, after John Tyler, you've got Polk, who was... Uh, more Jackson than Jefferson, but then Zachary Taylor, who uh, was certainly, when you look at his inaugural address, very Jeffersonian in a lot of ways. You look at uh, then, of course, uh, Pierce and Buchanan, very Jeffersonian. So Jefferson was more important than Washington, I think, in setting the tone. But Jackson is someone that you have to reckon with because his actions in the 1830s are going to foreshadow what Lincoln will do in the 1860s. And in fact, this is what we should be looking at, right? I mean, that, that kind of idea. 
So how do I teach the Jacksonian period? And how do you do it? He, he, how do you incorporate Calhoun? Well, it's easy. Okay, so if we're going to teach Jackson, you got to start with Jackson. You got to give a little background with Jackson. You got to explain who he is, where he comes from, this, this rough frontier environment, uh, a man who grew up in a society, a backcountry society with uh, a, a sense of liberty that was certainly dominated by this uh, you know, borderlands region of England, which is uh, natural liberty. Jackson liked to fight. There's a great story of his almost being killed by the Benton brothers in a, in, a, in, a, in a shootout, essentially, at one point. He loved to duel. I mean, this is who Andrew Jackson was. It's why he's a larger-than-life figure. The, the, the story of him coming into Washington, inviting all his friends, and there goes the neighborhood. you got people falling off the balconies of the White House. I mean, this is hilarious stuff. You've got Jackson's kitchen cabinet. His close advisors, he really didn't care about the cabinet. It was his advisors, his personal advisors. And you see this now all the time. The cabinet has been downplayed. These are people that don't really matter so much. It's who the president relies on for advice outside of the cabinet. And this is something that we've seen in many different presidents. But Jackson uh, made the cabinet more... Uh, of uh, an official, almost bland situation, hired and fired. These people didn't matter. He was dominant, but his advisors really were his kitchen cabinet. And they, then you've got the petticoat affair, and you've got why the kitchen cabinet became more important, because his entire cabinet resigns rather than associate with Peggy Eaton. The wives associate with Peggy Eaton. So you've got all this funny stuff going on in the Jackson administration. Interesting things. The hiring and firing of the Secretary of Treasury till he gets Roger Tawney, who will do his bidding. So how I teach the Jacksonian era, though, is to look at topics. I do it in topics, not chronology. And so the two that are important, and you bring in these other characters, or actually I should say three big topics, if you want to include his activities with the American Indian tribes, there's four. And then you've got Texas, which would be five. Okay, but in terms of, you know, for a podcast, because I mean, this, I do this over several, I mean, a couple of lectures, and they're, they're not short lectures. So the, the way I do it is start with nullification. You have to start with nullification because it is the issue that defines Jackson as an authoritarian. And it's the issue that creates the image of Jackson being King Andrew. This is where the Whig Party comes from. It was first talked about in South Carolina. It is the issue. And of course, this is where you bring Calhoun into the discussion. This is where you bring Daniel Webster into the discussion. This is where you actually bring Henry Clay into the discussion. Because when you look at that issue of nullification, it actually begins before Jackson takes office. You've got the Tariff of 1828, which was passed in the John Quincy Adams administration. And then you've got South Carolina's response to that. So you can start with South Carolina's response to the 1828 tariff. They call it unconstitutional, oppressive, and unjust. And you start with that. And you have a discussion about tariffs. Well, why are tariffs important? What's going on here? Well, this is the primary method of revenue for the United States government in the 1820s. All, in fact, all the way up for most of American history until about the 20th century. The primary way that the United States government received revenue was from a tariff. So they didn't have a lot of money. 
I mean, imagine that. If we just had tariffs now, that was the only way the general government could get money. When they come up with other sources of revenue, of course, they're going to spend more money. So the, the least amount of money they can get, the better if you, if you want to keep government being restrained and frugal. They can't have a lot of money. Well, when you get an income tax, now they have almost unlimited sources of money. And, of course, when they can borrow it, too, and just print it out of thin air, that's a whole other monster. But So you've got the nullification crisis. You start with tariffs. And then I've, I've already prepped this and, and primed it by talking about the tariff of 1816. I've talked about Calhoun's interest in, in, the, in the bonus bill and how that was a revenue-producing tariff only, maybe slightly protective for certain things, but that was in the spirit of union. You see, Calhoun was a unionist. Calhoun believed that the union should benefit all and burden all equally. Well, a revenue-producing tariff would burden and benefit all equally. It wasn't so high that Northerners are going to get essentially corporate welfare out of it, while the South is being getting nothing. They're being hit with this burden. Now, there are those that have argued that this would actually work for the planter favor because it didn't matter where they were selling their cotton. I mean, if they were selling it to Northern textile manufacturers or they're selling it to British textile manufacturers, it didn't matter. But on the other hand, they are facing increased prices for these goods, so that is a problem. So I start with a tariff, I prime it, and I get to 1828, and I say, well, here's South Carolina saying, this thing is too high, it's unconstitutional. A protective tariff is unconstitutional. So you can talk about that argument. Well, is it? You see, we haven't really gotten into Jackson yet. We're talking about these other things. And of course, Calhoun at this point, by 1829, and also 1828, he's the vice president of the United States. He was vice president under John Quincy Adams. He was vice president of the Jackson administration. So he's vice president. So there's where Calhoun comes into play. So South Carolina at this point is saying, well, this thing is unconstitutional. And they start talking about, in 1828, 1829, 1830, they start talking about arming themselves for secession. They're already talking about it. They're saying, look, this the deals, the, the jig is up. We're out. We want to leave the Union. Now, you can also bring in Tucker's partisan leader at that point because this thing was reprinted, uh, talking about a, or printed at that time, published, talking about a, a war, a potential war between North and South, essentially, over the tariff. Right? And Tucker is from Virginia, but he's already looking at this nullification period this, this entire first few years of the Jackson administration, where this is a big issue, and he's saying this is something that's going to spill over eventually. This is going to be a bigger issue than just a war of words. So this is where you bring Calhoun in. You've got the very famous Webster-Hain debate, and of course you've got Daniel Webster. You can talk about Daniel Webster, who is also a major figure. I mean, Daniel Webster is an interesting individual because Daniel Webster was a secessionist, essentially, in 1815. He's a nullifier in 1812, a secessionist by 1815. But in 1830, when he debates Robert Hayne of South Carolina, no, 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 I'm a union man. The union is the highest, or, uh, the highest thing. We, we, we got to support the union. I'm an American. I'm a union man. Well, because at that point, union means northern domination of the government. The New England areas figured out that a stronger central government will help them economically. 
1812, there were commercial regions. Still were in 1830, but their growing industry had forced Webster to rethink his commitment to tariffs. Low tariffs help a commercial area where you're shipping. High tariffs help an industrial area. So this was corporate welfare for his constituents. That's why that was important. So Webster becomes the guy, and he debates Hain, and of course the idea is that Daniel Webster wins the debate. Lost in all of that is when Calhoun resigns his position as vice president, and he goes into the Senate to debate Daniel Webster, and he thrashes him. Calhoun, if you go and look at the text and you, and you read it, Calhoun thrashes Daniel Webster. Webster doesn't stand a chance. You also have the very famous toast between Calhoun and Jackson. The Union, next to our liberty most dear. May we remember that it can only be preserved by distributing equally the benefits and burdens of Union. And Jackson, the Union, long may it endure, right? So, I mean, you have this debate. So you bring Calhoun into the debate that way, and then you can bring in the Fort Hill Address. Where Calhoun resigns, he goes back to his plantation, and he gives the Fort Hill Address. And the way you could incorporate that in is just provide a text, a little bit of a snippet, what you think is the most brilliant part of it, whatever that is, and you provide some primary reading material. Here is Calhoun. And you can talk about the force bill. And then you get into the constitutional questions here. That's where Calhoun gets woven into this. Right? So you have this really good situation with Calhoun, a reluctant nullifier, and in fact against secession. The, the secessionists in South Carolina distance themselves from Calhoun because... He wasn't on board with secession. He was a union man. He always said he was. That's the important thing about it. So you've got that part of it. You can bring that in. And then, of course, you can talk about the force bill. You can bring up John Tyler's speech against the force bill. They, people said that was political suicide for John Tyler. There's another great uh, part of that whole debate. And his vote against it in the Senate. Henry Clay, you can bring in Henry Clay to this discussion because... He orchestrates the compromise where the tariff is reduced, but the force bill passes. And then you can talk about South Carolina nullifying the force bill. They meet in convention. This is how you also need to frame this. They meet in convention and nullify the tariff. They don't just do it through the legislature. They call a convention for this. See, there's so much stuff in this that needs to be brought out. That's not just Andrew Jackson did this, Andrew Jackson did that. The periphery individuals in the Jackson administration are much more interesting than Andrew Jackson. Jackson as an individual is interesting, but Jackson as a president is terrible. So you bring that in. And then, of course, you got people calling him King Andrew. You have the formation of the Whigs in South Carolina first, because in 1832, they actually have their own guy, right? I mean, they, they just, they buck everybody. But in 1832, there's no Whig party yet. So you've got these sectional, they're trying to, they're trying to throw the, the election to the Congress, so you bring in Henry Clay again with that, but that's how you do it. And then, of course, Martin Van Buren starts figuring out how to create a real modern party in this time period. And, of course, Van Buren will eventually become vice president, and that is interesting in and of itself. You've got Van Buren organizing this, this new Democrat party, Uh, and the Whigs then copying it by 1840. And they do it better than Van Buren ever did. 
But Van Buren is a transformative figure. There's nobody more transformative in the Jacksonian period in many ways than Martin Van Buren. He creates modern political parties. And then, of course, is eventually elected president, handpicked by Andrew Jackson, elected president. So you've got all that really interesting stuff going on. This is how you bring Calhoun in. You bring him in in these ways. You bring him in with nullification. You bring him in with the creation of the Whig Party, his stance against Jackson. He refused to be associated with the Whigs. He was in opposition, but he refused to be associated with the Whigs. You bring him in that way. And then, of course, you got the bank issue, which is a whole other monster in and of itself. And you've got all that. Jackson was actually fairly sympathetic to the bank. He wasn't anti-bank. David Crockett called him out for this. He said, this guy's so inconsistent, he never takes a position on anything. He just does whatever he thinks. And personal enemies meant more to Jackson than anything else. And when Jackson found out Henry Clay was in line with the bank, and Henry he blamed Henry Clay for the death of his wife, well, that was it. Nicholas Biddle didn't like him either. So that is where you teach Jackson. And that's how you do it to bring in these much more interesting characters. Calhoun, Clay, Webster, Biddle even, Tawny. Van Buren. That's really interesting stuff. You teach it with topics rather than looking at it from Jackson's reaction to each. You teach it from how these other things were working on that. So the bank. You've got the bank war. You've got Jackson's bank veto, which is a great veto message. I mean, look, it's one of the best. One of the best veto messages ever written. So you can bring that in and talk about Jackson in that way. But Jackson's position against the bank wasn't necessarily ideological. He wasn't Thomas Hart Benton. Benton hated the bank. Benton hated the bank because he thought the bank was dangerous for the average American. Jackson hated the bank because he hated Henry Clay. And eventually he was persuaded by some of these anti-bank arguments. But that wasn't, that wasn't the core of his opposition to the bank. He didn't like Nicholas Biddle. He didn't like Henry Clay. And so therefore killing the bank serves to kill their political ambitions, at least in his mind. You can talk about the American in, uh, the removal of the American Indian tribes. You can bring in Winfield Scott with that. It's a, I mean, here's another opportunity to bring in another character. Winfield Scott, his job in relocating the Cherokee Indian, for example, out of Georgia. I mean, that was his job to do it. And you can bring in the different, uh, different perspectives on that. You have the Cherokee writing what they said, and then you've got Scott's account of it, which is completely different. So who's telling the truth? You've got that part of it too. There's so many things to do with this, and I think that we get caught in this trap as historians of talking about history from the top down, from the presidents down. And I mean, I frame things that way, but if you look at my American history course, um, I do administrations for the first five, and then I start doing topics, and I have a discussion of just the South, the discussion of the North, and I bring all this stuff in in different ways because that's how you can captivate people and you you have to have a, a, a timeline, a framework of a timeline, but you can bring all these other things into it and it creates a more complex and rich discussion of American history and all these other people that really drove American politics in this period. It wasn't Jackson. Jackson wasn't. Jackson was a dominant personality and, I mean, we... What he says about John Marshall, who didn't want, who doesn't want to stick it to John Marshall. Of course, it's an issue that we, uh, uh, in, in the modern era, is something that is very delicate. But to tell John Marshall to stick it is great. I mean, we love that about Andrew Jackson. 
It's fantastic. But this is how you do it. You go out and you find these other figures and you pull primary documents. You pull some of the Fort Hill address. You pull that John Tyler speech. You pull some of the Webster Hain debate if you want to do that. You get Jackson's bank veto. Sure. You read that South Carolina ordinance of nullification. You read it because that's how you bring Calhoun in. That's how you bring these other people in. You got to use the primary sources. And you're simply just teaching with primary sources then at that point, which is the real meat and bone, meat and potatoes, right? I mean, this is it. This is the bones. You got to get those bones of history. You got to get right down to the core. I tell people all the time, you want to study a period, read the primary documents. Reading other, reading secondary sources is fine and it gives you an introduction to these things, but go out there and actually read the primary documents. It's so much better. All right. So that's answering that question for you. Hope I answered it the way you wanted it to be answered. Uh, that's how I do it. And I hope everyone else got something out of this too. And I'll see you tomorrow on the Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.